Hello, this is Karen Griffin introducing Space to Be's podcast on people and performance, leadership and love. Conversations with leaders, practitioners, experts, authors, and anyone with extensive experience and good insight into the world of work in the 21st century. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Sally Denham Vaughan. Sally is a highly experienced executive coach, organizational consultant, international trainer, facilitator, and supervisor. She's a chartered coaching psychologist and RAPS registered supervisor with a coaching speciality. She's had 25 years of experience working within public, private, and third sector organizations to facilitate change, develop programs, and coach leaders and teams. With a background in clinical psychology and gestalt psychotherapy, she's also an associate with Teos Institute, associate fellow with the International Society for Coaching Psychology, and has served as the chair of the EAGT GPO committee. And she now specializes in developing relational leadership in purpose-driven organizations. Sally's doctorate has a focus on organizational development, leadership, and gestalt approaches. She's the co-founder of Relational Change with Marianne Shidiak and a key contributor to Marianne's book, Relational Organizational Gestalt. Welcome. Lovely to be here, Karen. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's, uh, I, I feel very blessed to have you here, having been a, an ex-student of yours on your relational organisational gestalt programme, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I'm so pleased you've agreed to join our podcast on this really important subject of change and in particular change from a relational organisational gestalt perspective, which I'm sure our listeners will love to hear a little bit more about. So, there is so much rich, richness in your work, Sally. Um, I'm, I'm really keen for you to share your wisdom on five key questions today. Mm. So I'll just read out the questions so that the listener knows what's coming and, uh, and then we'll go through them in turn if that's all right with you. Perfect. So firstly, what is relational change as opposed to any other type of change? Secondly, why is relational change so important in 2022? Thirdly, what are the mindset shifts required to do relational change well? Fourthly, so what does a successful change program actually look like, therefore? And finally, what are the key skills for a good relational change practitioner? Mm. Do they sound all right for you? They sound fantastic, Karen. And I think they have the benefit of arising from your experience of the programme. So they're very grounded in, in what we're going to be talking about. Fantastic. So the first one, what is relational change as opposed to any other type of change? Mm. Well, at Relational Change as a business, we have a strap line, really, which says better relationships, better world. And people assume that we're primarily talking about the quality of relationships. And indeed, that is one facet that relational change is about. But more than anything else, it's about change that is emergent from context. So we talk about a contextually agile approach, a responsive approach, and a way of dealing with what is. Now, perhaps the best way for me to illustrate that is, um, you know, I've been doing change work long enough to remember when we would start with a, a blue skies vision 
you know, and big, hairy, audacious goals. And, and there would be a vision out there somewhere in the future of where we wanted to get to. And all too often, um, what happened during our change program is we realized the gap between where we wanted to be and where we were. So that led to us thinking, well, wouldn't it be lovely if we started with where we are and then focused on where we want to go? So it, it's very much to do with grounding ourselves in the present moment and then having an emergent process for where we want to get to. So that doesn't mean that we don't have a plan. It doesn't mean we don't have a desired outcome or direction. But a bit like programming the sat-nav, you know, I might want to go to Edinburgh, but if I don't know I'm starting from Birmingham, yeah. I've, I'm going to have a big problem working out my direction. So Very good. That's a really interesting way of uh, describing the difference of approach. Mm. So um, contextually, the world has become all about change for a long time now. And especially since the pandemic, mm. can you shed any more light on the triggers for this relational type approach to change and why mm. now more than ever, mm. it's important people understand that um, there is a different way to do it? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things about the pandemic is that it forced us into an unplanned adjustment. You know, and for for many businesses that I was involved in, in working with, um, this impacted on a huge scale. You know, the plans really went out of the window and it was all about how can you pivot to deal with the circumstances that you find yourself in? Um, you know, I'm thinking global teams who were used to, you know, I was working with C CEOs who spent a lot of their life in the air flying between different bases around the world and were suddenly, you know, locked up with the rest of us in one place. So there's a personal stretch of how do I inhabit my role as CEO when I'm actually not leaving my house for three months, you know, I haven't put on makeup unless I'm going on a Zoom meeting. So there became a whole sort of personal issue about what's my role, what's my identity, how do I adjust? And I think in terms of teams, relationships, we've already talked about, you know, these dual factors of relationships in context. There was an immediate sort of disruption to the mm -hmm. field. Yeah. So rather than strategic planning, we had to harness, I think, if you like, the, the goodwill and trust and agility that was in the team to say, how do, we, how do we deal with this? How do we go forward? And I think for many people, there was a sense initially, oh, we can hang out for three months, you know, in lockdown, and then, then we'll go back to normal. And I think what's emerging now is that actually, the world of work has changed in a way that it's not a change followed by, ah, oh, we've done the change, let's evaluate and see what's different. It's ongoing, you know, yeah. as I look at the pandemic now, it's ongoing. We're just here in England thinking, oh, we might be in for another wave. And just as we thought we were going back, we've got to be agile again. And I, I think that means that the VUCA environment, rather than being something that we 
we find interesting or emergent complexity being interesting it's yeah. something that actually we've had to learn to navigate yeah it's not a desirable it's an essential it's an essential absolutely and the word that's standing out for me there is context really and I remember one of the, the lovely models that you introduced me to every year ago was the SOS model mm. so mm. Um, and perhaps you know it's at the centre, isn't it, of relational organisation gestalt, which is self, yeah. other, and situation. And right. no longer can we do the traditional A to B type approach of change. It's because the self, other, and situation is constantly changing. So any change programme has to reflect that dynamic. That's right. And any intervention, in a way, we've got those three lenses that are operating all the time into, you know, we, we would call that a gestalt, a whole experience where, although we can deconstruct, you know, into, as you say, those three separate elements, in practice, you know, our approach is very ecological, it's very emergent. So the influence of the situation upon our relationships and upon our self-experience is, is in, if anything, much bigger now and much more in our awareness than the old models that we had of bringing together individuals and seeing how we can build a team to cope with situations. Yeah. So, so that contrast, I think, between, if you like, a construction of pieces rather than let's look at this through the three different SOS lenses is, is vital and, as you say, lies at the heart of what we're doing. Yeah, very good. So almost in a way, change in action, isn't it? Our approach to change is becoming evolved. Yes. Yeah. Um, and as we know, and this is something that you and I have talked about on and off for a while, you know, I would say, so the mindset needs to shift. <laughs> and you would say, oh, is it the mindset or is it? The, the, you know the embodied experience and and connecting with that so let's open the door to that conversation Sally so mm. is there a mindset shift requirement or is it something else mm. yeah you're getting to the the heart I think you know of in SOS there's there is of course the rational the data gathering the planning the evaluation all those approaches to change that that tend to give us the linear direction that we want to go in. And in some ways, we might talk here about having a positive mindset, being open, being optimistic. Um, what we tend to know is that there's a whole other layer of experience that is not so easily accessed by cognitive processes. So if we're when we're talking about mindset, if we're talking about embodied experience, and perhaps gestures that are out of awareness, issues such as how I use power, or even more, um, what privilege is given to me in the field that is nothing to do with my mindset, but is more to do with how people relate to my embodiment, my role, my color, my gender, my age. Um, and all of that is outside of our control, is not in our mind, but, but is part of our embodied experience that emerges. Interesting. So bringing that 
to the table, into our awareness, um, we would say is very important for setting the conditions in which all the good stuff about mindset can, can work at its best. Yeah. Now, I think, Karen, you and I have, have discussed matters such as um, passion or love or trust, yeah. you know, which, which we know are so important to successful outcomes in a change programme. You know, if we don't trust each other or we don't have a sense of passion and purpose about the work we're delivering, mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people to really step up to some of the challenges that are going to be asked of them. Um, whereas with some trust and goodwill, mm-hmm. then often that will carry a program through. The, the difficulty is that what makes me trustworthy to the people in my team isn't necessarily in my awareness. So that's where there's a lot of what we would call dialogic processes involved in relational change. Yeah, so that is giving the time, the space and setting up um, an environment which is trusting to facilitate proper conversation where people are open. Yeah. Well, we, we have to get beyond the just doing yeah. into how are we doing and how are we doing together? Yeah. And that really means how is the way that I am performing my role at work impacting you? Totally. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, I think, is where we become much more embodied holistic sense makers than than just a mindset as such yeah so this is all really part of a successful change program isn't it and Mm. i I almost want to say it the obvious thing in order to do this there has to be an acceptance of the need to do it so there's something about education around understanding what a good change program looks like and then a willingness to create space for it for it to emerge in this way. So, in your view, Sally, then you know, given everything we've said so far, what does a great successful change program look like? If you could answer that in uh, three minutes, that would be great. I was going to say it, it's interesting, isn't it? That um, you know, when we look at the literature on change programs, I mean, so much of it, I think, is. Um, what should I say, disappointing, you know, because if, if, if I think of meta-analyses of organisational change programmes that have been conducted, then we know that it's largely um, human factors that will make the difference. Now, to many people, the change um, would go smoothly, would be unencumbered if only people would shape up and fit in. You know, so that from the beginning, there's more of a compliance attitude, you know, Mm. that we want people to comply. Um, Whereas we know that for people to be at their best, there has to be a sense of inclusion and engagement. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that anybody can do what they want or be, you know, significantly unaligned or uncoordinated with the direction of travel. Yeah. But it does mean that, um, you know, if we're going to bring a body of workforce with us, 
there needs to be inclusion and engagement. So if I, if I think of a large scale change program that I've been involved in, um, certainly, you know, globally, I guess what, if we go back to contextual and relational, what I've seen is that um, what success looks like in each of the key sites can be very different, you know. Um, if the bottom line is solely profit, then what we tend to do is work towards efficient compliant with particular governance standards. So, you know, if that is the outcome, then probably some of the things that we're talking about are not as important. If you've got large scale, large numbers of people desperate to work for you, whatever the cost, um, then you may be able to have a high turnover of unskilled labor doing tasks. When we get into products that require more creativity, more engagement, more care, then what we find is that most of what gives us quality can't be easily bought and can be very easily lost. So there we're talking about factors such as inclusion, recognition of what's important to everybody in that particular context and team, um, discussing degrees of difference in alignment and what, what can be tolerated while still preserving the DNA of, of the direction. Yeah. So that's often an early conversation that I find, you know, I need to have with the senior exec is, you know, how many degrees of freedom are there around what good might look like in Southeast Asia compared to Washington? Yeah. yeah. Interesting, really good. And um, as you were talking about the, you know, the profitable the profit goal, um, which can sometimes mean efficient compliance. Mm. I found myself thinking that that maybe have been okay many years ago for lots of large organizations, but our context has changed. Mm. Uh, and again, it depends where you are in the world, doesn't it? But certainly yeah, yeah. In, the U in the UK, it's, um, you know, you've got educated people, a lot more education coming through the system. You've got younger people coming into work who have different expectations from their employer um, and the do as you're told kind of uh, culture just is less so than it was even 30 years ago when I started out yeah. after graduation so um, it, it'll and, and it's good that you've put the global context on that because maybe that's not the case in yeah. Southeast Asia yeah. but it, it it is the case in in slightly more yeah. dare I say educationally advanced countries well, it's interesting you say educationally advanced I'm not I'm, I'm not sure if that's uh, a key factor I think in there are there would seem to be key drivers in particular cultures that affect and impact how people are going to be moved to engage and I, I to engage and I I think you're right that possibly in Northern Europe, America at the moment, we've got a number of people looking for purpose. Yes. Purpose at work. What does that mean? You know, um, expecting to have conversations about purpose and how, you know, their values are aligned with the work they're doing and the outcomes. 
Um, profit is still a, a very major driver in many areas of the world. And, and I think most people who are working are not in the privileged position, perhaps, of being able to think, I want a passion project and that's all I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, but respect mm -hmm. might be a very key, you know, to have respect, to feel valued, to feel relevant, uh, to feel part of a community. So yeah. I think my experience of, of working with teams in different areas of the globe is that the key drivers of, of what's motivating yeah. do, do vary. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned earlier this compliance. It's compliance versus commitment, isn't it? And all of these factors that you've been mentioning do drive that commitment mm. as opposed mm. to just a compliant mm. outcome. Mm. Fascinating. So... On to our final question now, which is, what are the key skills then, in your view, of a good relational change practitioner? <laughs> well, of course, I'm talking to one, Karen, so, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think one of the things about, um, you know, using these skills in practice is that people tend to be very curious. Yeah. Um, I often say stamina, you know, mental, physical, emotional stamina. Yeah. Uh, appetite for engaging in difficult conversations and a sort of boldness to name things. So, you know, we, we talk about um, factors such as perceived weirdness index, which is, you know, <laughs> a, a concept from a colleague in, in North America that, you know, there's there's a willingness, in a sense, to to not be compliant without being so disruptive that you deconstruct what you're working with. But but you know, one of our sort of founders in in Gestalt, organisational Gestalt, Ed Nevis, would say that the the job of the consultant is to bring a little bit of what's missing in the system. Yes. You know, and to be bold enough to name that but humble enough not to do it. Yes. You know, so there's something about holding it in that field. Um, I think being sensitive, you know, which means that for many people, they've got a history of, of being called oversensitive or, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but to have a particular sensitivity to these micro phenomena mm. that mean that when you're in an environment, there's a sense of, who's getting on with who, who's not getting on with who, and what might be compliance versus commitment, you know. Where are those two um, in, a, in an uneasy relationship? Because if I'm employed to do a task, I expect to have to comply. You know, it's part of the deal. It's part of the contract. On the other hand, I want to give my best. You know, most people start off wanting to give their best. So there's something here about the range of ways of being that a, a skilled relational practitioner can, can have. Um, Marianne Shidiak has developed a framework that she calls CARES, where she talks about different aspects of presence that somebody would be able to bring, the ability to connect, to be authentic enough, you know, to have a wide range of ways of being, to be embodied and to be able to support themselves under a difficult situation. 
so that they can reach towards the other, but not actually sacrifice their own views and opinions. So I think that's a, a helpful sort of way of thinking about what enables us to be present and presencing with the other as we emerge. So articulate on this subject, Sally. It's, uh, that's a wonderful summary and uh, we'll make sure that's somehow captured in words because people will be going, oh, what did you say? <laughs> so we'll, be, we'll be capturing that in the summary underneath. It's been a pleasure to, to chat to you today mm. about this really important subject and um, I know you've got so much more wisdom to share and maybe with your permission you might come back at, a, at another time to, to focus on it from a different angle but uh, Thank you, Thank you so much. No, <laughs> such a pleasure, Karen. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation.